Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. This Parsha, we read the whole Parsha every year. We also read this Parsha on Shavuot. We read this at um, the holiday where we uh, celebrate receiving Torah because, as you might guess, this week's Parsha includes Revelation, receiving Torah. And so uh, we read this, the whole Parsha every year, which means we pick a different part of it every year. So if you really do want to hear about Revelation or the Ten Commandments, you are welcome to go through the past eight years of podcasts uh, on this Parsha and find one that deals with those topics. But I read an interesting article um, I'm always trying to stay on my toes for you people. So I read an article um, on this Parsha that talks about it's studying the the wordplay and the use of words by Yitro, by Jethro, Moshe's father-in-law in this Parsha. And it's the article claims that other places in our tradition, we see that when someone is considered wise, they are also considered often to be um good with words, right? That they're, they're clever with speech. Uh, and he brings this argument looking at um, references from all other places in Tanakh, not just from uh, Torah, but from, you know, prophets and the writings and all that good stuff. Uh, and so I, I don't care about really his argument. So I don't know if I really buy it or not. It doesn't matter. He did lift up some stuff that I thought was interesting. And and then there's some stuff from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs I want us to talk about that I think really speaks to the moment that we're in um, in this country and in many countries around the world as we uh, confront sliding towards authoritarianism. Uh, and so we're going to begin 18.1. We're going to begin at the beginning of Parshat Yitro. So the beginning of 18 says that Yitro... Uh, the Kohen Midian, the priest of Midian, who's the father-in-law of Moshe, heard everything that God had done for Moshe and Israel, God's people, in bringing them out of, bringing Israel out of Egypt. Yitro, Moshe's father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moshe's wife, after she had been sent home. So this is Torah giving us a parenthetical here that she had been sent home at some point. We don't know exactly why. And her two sons, one of whom was named Gershom. That is to say, I have been a stranger in a foreign land, meaning Moshe named his son Gershom. We saw that earlier in Torah, earlier in this book. And he, and it explains that he names him Gershom because he was Gersham. He was a ger, a stranger, sham, there. So it can't mean, it can't mean Midian because that's where he names him, ger sham. I was a stranger there. So if he names him that in Midian, he can't be talking about Midian where he was a ger. Where was he a ger? Egypt. So that's an interesting, that's an interesting proposition that Moshe names his son. I was a stranger there, meaning a stranger in Egypt. But Moshe was born in Egypt. 400 years his people had been in Egypt. So what, what does it mean to say Gersham? I was a stranger there in Egypt when that's his native 
you know, country, at least for the last 400 years of his ancestors. Um, was he a stranger in the palace? Was he a stranger um, with all of his people who had migrated there and don't come from there? So it's, it's interesting. We always just take Gershom's name for granted, but we really shouldn't. All right, so let's go to four. And the other one's named Eliezer, meaning the God of my father was my help. And he delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Okay, that's a lot to put into Eliezer. That's not what it means, but okay. But but Torah elaborates, right? Eli, my God, Ezer was my help. Uh, so the God of then then uh, it goes on in Torah to say that what that mean that shorthand for the God of my father was my help, and he delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. So Vayavo Yitro Choten Moshe Uvanavishto. So he so Yitro Moshe's father-in-law uh, brings Moshe's son sons and wife to him in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. There is a lot of commentary on this verse that says this is proof that this text has been misplaced. It has been moved and put here, but it really is after Sinai. It's after uh, Revelation, but we're not going to focus on that today. Amy, I have a quick question. Um, How come come it keeps saying the father-in-law of Moses? Three times they told us that Yitro was the father. We we learned it in the first sentence. They don't have to keep repeating it. Right? So Department of Redundancy Department. So Torah doesn't usually do that. So clearly Torah wants to emphasize uh, his role as Choten Moshe, right? As the father-in-law of Moshe. So it, it is hammering this over and over and over that this is Moshe's father-in-law. So either this is a super close relationship um, that, you know, Yitro is not just defined as Yitro, but he's defined by this relationship in some way, or this is right. Uh, another way that Yitro gains um, uh, prestige if you will, is that he is the Choten Moshe, the um, father-in-law of Moshe. But yes, absolutely. Torah is hammering and and emphasizing this relationship between Moshe and Yitro. And so he sends word to Moshe, so presumably on his way before he gets there. I, your father-in-law Yitro, am coming to you with your wife and and her two sons. So there's some discussion about this as well, um, right? Her two sons. Well, whose else's would they be? <laughs> right. So, so um, but defining them as Tsipora's sons, interesting. Is it because Moshe hasn't been around? He's been kind of an absent dad. So they're, you know, more attached to Tsipora. They've been in Tsipora's clan. They've been hanging out in Midian. They've been hanging out with her father, with their grandfather, and you know, so are are seriously identified with her side now. It's it's an interesting choice, word choice by Torah. So Moshe went out to meet his father-in-law. This is what you do. This is why we go out to meet the bride of Shabbat. Yes? Because when a dignitary is coming, somebody that you want to, that you want to recognize as being super important, you go out. Likrat, right? Likrat kala is right. 
is what we do on Friday night. Moshe is going out to greet his father-in-law. This is a sign of respect, um, is that you don't wait for royalty to arrive at your front door. If you know they're coming to your house, you go out to meet royalty as a sign of respect. So he does that. He, he treats his father-in-law with great respect. He goes out to meet him. How else do you treat someone who you want to acknowledge as being res- deserving of your respect? You bow, right? So he bows. You can imagine him going to his knees, putting his forehead to the ground in front of Yitro. And then they kiss, which is traditional, um, kissing on the cheeks to welcome one another. And each asked after the other one's shalom, right? This is how you ask how someone is. You ask after their shalom. You ask after their peace. How is your peace? So in in Israel today, Barry's going to greet his friend by saying, Mashlamcha. What's with your shalom? What's with your peace? H- how is it with your peace? Right? Mashlomech, mashlomchem. All right. So he asked, they ask after each other's shalom. Uh, so the, and they come to the, they went into the tent. So Moshe tells his father-in-law everything that God had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and all the hardships that had befallen them on the way and how Yudhifafe had delivered them. And Yitro rejoiced over all the kindness that Yudhe had shown Israel in delivering them from the Egyptians. Look at his answer. What does Yitro say? Baruch Adonai. Baruch Yudhe Asher Hitzil etchem miyad Mitzrayim umiyad paro. Blessed be Yudhe who has saved you, y'all, from the hand of Egypt and from the hand of Pharaoh that saved this people. Um, from under the hand of Egypt. Atta, now, yadati ki gadol Elohim. So now I know that Yudhe is greater than all the gods. Ki vadavar asher zadu alehem. This is a kind of tangled Hebrew here. Um, the closest most commentators come to unpacking it is. Now I know that Yudhe is greater than all the gods by the very thing that they were going to do to to y'all, to them. So that how did Pharaoh and his soldiers die? They drowned in the Nile. And what was supposed to happen to Moshe? He was supposed to be drowned in the Nile, right? So the very thing that they used against Israel to kill Israelite babies Right, that is the very way they died by the hand of Yudhe So Moshe's father-in-law, what does he do? What's the right response here? He brings an Olah, Uzvachim. He brings sacrifices. Elohim. Now, what does this mean? He brings sacrifices. Does this mean to Elohim capital E? Or does this mean to Elohim to gods plural? Meaning his gods and Yudhe In any case, it is clear he is sacrificing to Yudhe Vavhe. Whether it's that, whether it's Yudhe Vavhe exclusively 
or Elohim lowercase e, meaning to, to lots of different deities, including his own. We don't know. It doesn't matter in terms of what we glean from this. What we understand is that he accepts the glory of yud that yud is greater than all the other gods, and he brings sacrifices. This is the right response. This is the response that who did not have? Who did not have this response? Pharaoh. So Yitro does what Pharaoh failed to do even after 10 plagues. This was what should have happened. This is what Pharaoh should have done. If you recall, when Moshe says, let my people go to worship Yudhei what does Pharaoh answer? Pharaoh answers, who is this Yudhei I don't know of any Yudhei so why should I let them go? And so here, Yitro says, I, now I know. And Pharaoh says, what, what do I know from this? All right. So this is clearly the right answer. Next day, Moshe sat. Moshe. Moshe sits as magistrate among the people while the people stood about Moshe from morning until evening. And, and Moshe's father-in-law sees what Moshe is doing, and here it's interesting in the Hebrew, it says what Moshe is doing to the people. Vayomer, and he says, and this is part of the wordplay, look at how many times we're going to get the word, word, and thing. Remember in Hebrew, word and thing are the same word, davar. So, so uh, Yitro says, mahadavar asher asata, asher ata oselaam. What is what is this thing you're doing to the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand literally on you, but it means, right, stand next to you from the morning until the evening? And Moshe says to his father-in-law, um, it's because they, they come, Lidrosh Elohim, they come to ask stuff of Elohim, of God. When they, when, here we go with davar again. When they have a davar, an issue, but this, the, the scholar that I was reading argues that this is the actual word for legal case, davar, because of the word ba. When you bring a davar, right, they bring a thing to me, it doesn't mean thing. When you when you use this word bow to bring it forward, it means a legal case. So Moshe's answer so so Yitro uses the word Davar to say, what's what is what is it? What is this thing? What's this thing you're up to? And Moshe says, Well, when they bring using the same word, when they bring legal cases before me, they bring legal cases before me. Kind of not answering what. Yitro means Yitro knows what is what's actually happening, right? When your when your kid is into something that they're not supposed to be into, and you come down and you say, "What are you doing?" You, you know exactly what they're doing. You're not asking what they're doing. What are you saying? You're criticizing what they're doing and asking them to answer for it. So that's what Yitro is essentially doing: is saying, "What are you doing?" And Moshe says, well, they bring their legal, they have to bring their legal cases before me. And he's like, I know that, (laughs) right? I know what you're doing. So he goes back and he repeats 
And so his father-in-law says to him, It is not good, this thing you're doing. So he goes back to using the word davar to mean this whole business. All right, lotov, it's not good, this thing you're doing. In creation, in the creation narrative, if you'll recall, after every single thing, after every single day, after everything is created, what does Torah tell us? God sees that it is what? Tov. Not good. You know, it's good. Oh, yeah. It's always yeah. kitov. Vayar Elohim kitov. It's all good. Then human beings get created and it's tov me'od. It's very good. What is the only time we see in the creation narrative lotov? Anybody remember? Adam is alone. <laughs> Adam is levad. Adam is levad. The earthling is alone. That is the only time we see Lotov. Here we get resonances of that with Yitro saying, Lotov hadavar sheratau said, it's not good this thing you're doing. And it should resonate with us. That first Lotov is about Adam being alone. That's exactly what Yitro was saying to Moshe. It is not good that you are doing this alone. You will surely wear yourself out. And they, he plays on this Navolti bowl. And what does that mean? It really means kind of like a plant to wilt, to wither, but um, whatever. Uh, and these people, right? Gamata, both you, Gam Ha'amhazet, and also this people with you. Ki kaved davar. We're back to davar. This business, what is it? What word does he use here? That it's to what? It's to kaved. What happened to Pharaoh's heart? It got kaveded. It got heavy. It got hard. So here, so these are resonances I didn't hear before, like until I was reading this guy. He's, he's saying these are very intentional words by Yitro. Echoing Lotov, it's not good that Moshe is alone doing this. It's not good for Moshe. It's not good for the people. And then what does he say? This thing, it's too heavy for you. In case we were thinking we were pushing the interpretation, we're not. You cannot do this levad. You cannot do this alone. I want to go one step further. I want to say, he's saying to Moshe, you can't do this alone. It's too heavy for you. But I want to, I do think we're hearing the resonance here of, of Yitro saying, the, using the word that was used of Pharaoh. I don't think that's an accident in Torah. I think he's, he's suggesting that that if Moshe continues to do this, there will be a kavedness about Moshe. There will be a hardness, a heaviness about Moshe that will bump right up against what happened to Fa- with Pharaoh. That Moshe is in danger of becoming an authoritarian ruler. If he continues to be the only one to hear these cases, the only one who can who can mediate between God's will and the people and how to adjudicate God's will among the people. If he insists, 
He's the only one who can do it. He is coming very close to being pharaonic. Now listen to me. He says, Atta, now, Shma Bikoli, listen to my voice. We've heard this before. Shma Bikola, listen to her voice is what God says to Abraham about Sarah. Listen to her voice. Listen to my voice. I'm going to give you counsel. That God may be with you. You represent the people before God. You bring disputes before God, right? Devarim, here we're back to those things. And enjoin upon them the laws and the teachings and make known to them the way they are to go and the practices they are to follow. You will also seek from among the people, capable people, anshechayu. I don't know. I don't love capable as a translation for chayil. I'm going to let Barry think about it for a bit. The the language person over there. Um, so anshe chayil. Um, so more than able, right? Like um, excellent. Yeah, there you go. Excellent people. Year a Elohim who are in awe of. God, right? Who are God fearers. That's often how that's translated, but we've had long discussions about your ah being both awe and fear. So, so men who respect the divine, anshe emet, people of truth, right? Son people who son, who are sonim or haters of all kinds of corruption. Sare alafim, so uh People, someone to pe- people to be over thousands is how it's uh, translated. But we have had this discussion before. LF may not mean thousand in biblical Hebrew. It probably means um, unit, right? Uh, a military unit, however many that was. Um, later, it becomes the word for thousand. So. In any case, people people over bigger groups, then over hundreds, then over fifties, then over tens, and let them judge the people. Have them bring every major dispute to you, but let them decide every minor dispute themselves. Make it easier for yourself by letting them share the burden with you. Hakel, hakel me'alecha, the opposite of kavein right, is make it lighter, easier for you. Literally, kale, light. So, right, this is matok uh, v'kal, sweet and low. That's what sweet and low is called in, in Israel. All right. If you do this and God so commands you, you will be able, and here it says to bear up. I don't love that, but there's not a great way. What I want you to see is the Hebrew you will be able to stand. I think you lose in English the fact that he chooses the word that will enable you to stand. Because what has he been doing until now? Sitting. Sedentary lifestyle. He's been sitting, right? So you've been sitting and that dis- it, it unables you, whatever that, it disables you to stand. You can't stand until you quit sitting all the time and let these people help you. And also all this people, 
they should come that they will come to their place uh, in shalom in peace. So we opened with them asking after each other shalom. Now we get a solution that that Yitro suggests is going to allow Moshe to stand and is going to allow the people to go to their place in peace. This, when I don't know how I never saw this before, this is what we say at the graveside, that when the casket goes in the grave, we say, they should come to their place of rest in peace. Um, all right, so we're going to talk about this. Because we have to think about what does that mean that the people can go to their place in peace? What does that mean? And so Moshe's, Moshe's, the good news is he's not so kaved, he's not so hardened that he can't hear this. He hears it and he, he listens to his father-in-law. And he did, he does everything that his father-in-law says. He chose capable people out of all of Israel, appointed them heads over the people, thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And they judged the people. The difficult matters they would bring to Moshe, all the minor matters they would decide themselves. Moshe bids his father-in-law farewell. And he went on his way to his own land. All right. One thing to remember, Yitro is a non-Israelite. That is very important. Moshe gets the institution of the, what do you call it? The judiciary. This is, the, this is an independent judiciary that then comes to Moshe and God as the Supreme Court. So Moshe institutes this judiciary on the advice of a non-Israelite. Not only is he not Israelite, what is he? He's the, he's the high priest of a different God, of a different religion. So clearly, from the earliest outset of our understanding of who we are as a people, who we are as a religion, we are obviously not a people who says we have exclusive access to the truth. We have exclusive access through our God to the best way to do things. The high priest of the gods of Midian tells Moshe how to run the entire judiciary and he does it. All right. So that is important, I think. And I think, and again, for the first time, I really, we've always understood this to be Moshe was taking too much on himself. He's going to be exhausted. The people are exhausted waiting in line all day. We've all, we've all always understood that. I don't think I really heard the resonances about becoming kaved, becoming the same word that's used of Pharaoh until having lived through the last couple of years. That I think Yitro is saying, or, or I'm reading it this year, that Yitro saying more than just it's not good for you and it's not good for the people. It's not the healthiest model. I think he's saying something else. I think he's saying it's dangerous. You will become kaved. You will become like Pharaoh, hard. And I don't think that just means cynical. I think it means the way Pharaoh, the way it's used about Pharaoh in Torah is you, you'll become an autocrat. You'll become a tyrant. And that 
is not good for you. And that is super not good for the people. This is not the way that, that mediation is supposed to work. That there, you need to empower other leaders among the people to make these decisions, to hear these cases and to make these decisions. That is the better way for you and for the people. If you do that, they will come to their place Bishalom in peace. <coughs> because it's a healthier model when other people are involved um, in adjudicating disputes. It, give, it gives them power. It gives them insight into what the challenges are, um, you know, that are happening among the people. All right. So um, what's going on in the chat? Well-behaved children were mine. Bad behavior, ours, <laughs> right? Or yours. <laughs> when, they're, when they're doing good, they're my kids. Otherwise, it's like your kid. Come, come get your kids, which is right, which is what, which is what God says to Moses, right? When the people are misbehaving, what does God say to Moshe? Your people, Amcha. Amcha, your people are messing up. You better get down there because your kids are a disaster. And what does Moshe said? Excuse me? Uh, it was you who brought these people up from the land of Egypt. So the parents squabbling over the children. Why did Yitro bring Moshe's wife and children to Moshe instead of Moshe sending for them? We don't know that Moshe didn't send for them. We don't know. We're not told. But it's clear that that word gets to Yitro that Moshe is hanging out uh, at the mountain. And so he's bring, he's reuniting them with his family. Moses was a renegade like Snowden. I don't get that reference, but okay. Um because Moshe has been a fugitive, correct? And they, right, so, and they were sent home, we're told. Yitro is a Midianite priest. Brian asks, is he converting to worshiping Hashem? Oh my goodness. So this is very much modern language. This language would make no sense in the ancient world because syncretistic worship was absolutely accepted. You could worship your deity and you could also, when you go visit Paris, you could, you know, you could sacrifice to the God of Paris while you're in Paris. That would be actually appropriate and polite. He is acknowledging the victory and the might and the deliverance of yud vav There was nothing to convert to. We hadn't received Torah. There's, right? He's acknowledging the power of yod and offering sacrifices as opposed to Pharaoh, right? Who didn't. At this point, it seems odd to use Elohim here unless he's like, yep, it's possible. Absolutely possible that he, he's sacrificing to many gods. Um, Midian and buries a part of Saudi Arabia. How did we get from Moses telling God this mission was too big for him to him doing this thing that's clearly too big for him, right? So Moshe seems to understand in the beginning, wait, 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 nope, 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 pick somebody else. I'm not, I'm the wrong guy for this. And now takes the whole thing on himself. But isn't this typical in some ways? Once we're roped into it, then we're like, I'm the only one who can do it, right? <laughs> um, and, and I think, I think Moshe really thinks that. I think Moshe really thinks he's the only one who can go to God 
and get all this, you know, information on what's supposed to happen. What, what I, the question I would have is how come God doesn't tell Moshe, this is not a good idea. How come God doesn't say to Moshe, you know what? Here's what I want you to do. <laughs> I want you to take Anshe Chayil, right? Able people. And right, it's Yitro who tells Moshe that, yeah, you're going to, you're going to burn out. Absolutely. All right. Um, Alex. What's going on? Hi, Rabbi, Amy. Um, I have a question. <laughs> I'm a little, the, where we left off last time, I, I think, would it be okay? Could you give us like, or give the group a minute of context? The last I knew the, the sea was parting. They were, you know, from last week. And um, so what's happened in the interim and wasn't there 40 years of wandering and so the 40 years doesn't happen yet. They've not yet been condemned to wander. They are, so they, we're at the very beginning of the journey into the Midbar, into the desert, into the wilderness. Desert's not a great term. It's really the wilderness because there's enough for the flocks to eat. So it's not exactly desert. But so they're, they're, it's their, it's their, if they've come out of Egypt, what did you miss? They complained. I know it's shocking, but already they're complaining, right? And turning on Moshe and like, was it for want of graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die, right? So blah, 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 blah. They complain, they complain. Um, and then they're camped here at the mountain. They're, so this is the beginning of their desert experience, of their wilderness experience. Sinai will be the first major you know, thing that happens, they receive the Ten Commandments. The, the tradition suggests they receive the entire Torah. That's about to happen. And it happens at, at the end of this Parsha. So it's not where they're receiving the Torah is prior to their wandering for 40 years? Correct. It's at the very beginning. They screw up enough times that by the last time they super screw up, God says, that's it. I'm done. I'm done. Your gen- this generation is going to die in the wilderness. It will be your children who cross over. That's going to take 40 years. For everyone who came out of Egypt to die is going to take 40 years. Everyone from age 20 and up who came out of Egypt is condemned to die in the wilderness. Um, and when we get to that Parsha, we always argue about why. What was the actual screw up um, that caused it? All right. Uh Somebody else? Nobody? All right. It's a shy and quiet group today. Meg? Hi. I, um, I'm just wondering, did, if I understood correctly, you said that this, this piece was put in afterwards. So then if, it, would that then be like a preemptive, like as to like more from a, from a, from a narrative point of view to elevate the import of, of, of this group of people getting some laws that, they could figure out amongst themselves. Like, um, is, is this a seeds maybe even of like more of a democratic um, way of, of, of looking at things like, like the seeds of how, because from my understanding, and this is, again, there's like so many ways to look at that. The 10 commandments are really a set of laws for man to get along with man. As both. Opposed, both. Half, half are between people, half are between people and God. Yes. Yes which is in a lot of traditions, there's the five and the five, like, right. like that. Um, but anyway, I was just thinking that instead of it being 
you know, it, it, by taking it away from just Moses, does it then become the seeds of even looking how man can figure it out amongst man? So, like amongst, the, amongst themselves. Yeah, I hear, I hear what you're saying, that if we move, if this had been after Sinai, right, where it originally was placed, then what I hear you saying is they would have received top-down uh, rules for how to judge among people, but that because it's here, it's actually pre-Sinai, how would they know that it must be because that they use their own wisdom, right? And their own sense of justice to try to figure it out, which democratizes mm-hmm. wisdom, mm-hmm. right? So I love that. Love that. That's a beautiful, beautiful drash on this, on, on why move it or, or what the effect of moving it um, does. Okay, Barry? Uh, yes, I, I wanted to strengthen this point even further and say that... Um, we have Moses is giving the reason. The reason I'm the one who's doing all the all the judging is because I can deliver the rules of God to the people. But then you have these judges who are who just need basic characteristics of integrity, and they can do it as well. And I know that God didn't tell him to do it, but God didn't say it's wrong. Right. So clearly God approves, right? Because it it goes forward and it goes forward successfully, right? And, it, and, the, and the system stays in place, right? That's the system that later, right? You have Shoftim, you know, place Shoftim in your gates, right? So it's, it continues to be the, the model. Yeah, but these, are not, but these are not democratically appointed people. So it's Correct. not like the American system. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, we shouldn't get too carried away. It's like the Israeli system where they <laughs> appoint themselves. There you go. Dana? But the system that's put in place, it's not a new system because Zitro is sharing it with Moses. I mean, it's a system that's been in place. What's different, it's, it's a new people, and um, Moses is not the permanent leader. Correct. I, I mean, it's... You, it, the system is not novel. Having... No, no, it's not. That was my point earlier, that Yitro brings Yitro's wisdom and Yitro's experience of how, you know, his people does it. And Moshe accepts that. Like, and Torah lifts that up as a legit model that I love that, that, that it's not new. And it's, it's worked in Midian. It's worked for Yitro, or presumably he's seen it somewhere and seen it work somewhere. And that's where our judiciary comes from, is from outside of Israel and outside of God in this sense. I love that. I think that's... So, so it's weird because God, it's kind of like, you know, God's not telling Moses what to do. God doesn't even think the people are going to do anything bad until they build the golden calf. It's like, God doesn't know. God, um, is there a word when you, what's the word when you know what's going to happen ahead of time? God, do, omnipresent or God doesn't seem, God seems out of it for a while. Well, we don't know that it, we don't know that this indicates in any way that God doesn't know what's going to happen. God forbid the rabbis would say, of course, God knows what's going to happen. God is omniscient. Of course, God knows God's not going to prevent it. Right. Cause we have free will. Um, but so that's a whole nother, you know, issue, but you're right that it seems like Yitro's the one kind of running the show here and giving Moshe advice. Where's God, right? Is God getting ready for Sinai? Like what? Right. So, um, all right. So I want to go to this piece by, uh, unless someone else, does someone else have their hand up? Did I miss anybody? 
Bert, you need to, you know, you need to keep me honest here. All right, Alex, you had your hand up. Last question. Again, I'm just trying to get my bearings. So Moses' father-in-law was, so he's not an Israelite. He didn't come from Egypt. No. Where was he? Like what group of people is this? Moshe lived in Midian. When he fled as a fugitive from Egypt, he went to Midian and he met Zipporah at the well, because that's where you meet young nubile women is at the well. So he meets uh, Zipporah at the well. He helps her and the women out and they take him home and he marries her and her father is Yitro, the high priest of Midian. So he works for Yitro. He lives with Yitro and hangs out in Midian until he is commissioned at the burning bush. The burning bush happens by Midian and then Moshe has to go save the people. That's his mission. But so Midian is where? Sorry. Is that? Not, it's not Egypt and it's not Israel, right? So he, he has to go to Egypt to free the people, but it's dangerous for Tzipporah and the boys to go. It's presumed this could be a suicide mission. Got it. So they're hanging out in Midian with, with Yitro, with the father, to keep them safe, presumably. So the, the people of Midian, they're not affected or enslaved like the people in Egypt, the, the Israelites in Egypt. Correct. So, and there's a whole long history that's very complicated between Israel and the Midianites, but this is obviously a time, this is written at a time when Israel and Midian were allies. It changes later. Remember Ruth, right? Here came Ruth the Moabite. The, no, sorry, that's Moabite. No, never mind. But Midian, Midian becomes the enemy of Israel at some point because they're all in the same neighborhood. You can't not have wars, Right. Amy, do we, do we know anything about the Midianite religion? Did they have a book or like a holy book? Or we don't what know. What do we know today? We don't know a lot about the Midianite religion. There are some who want to suggest that this is where Moshe learns about Yudhe That Moshe actually learns about Yudhe from Yitro. Um, and you know, basically, the, the, that's where this concept of this desert god um, that lives at the mountain comes from, is from Yitro. So we, we, we don't know. We don't know. All right. All right. Well, I keep swearing. I'm going to get to this. Uh, Rabbi? Yeah, uh, yes. Uh, I wanted to share uh, something I know that in the Quran, the Midianites are mentioned as uh, descendants of Abraham. And, and ones that, that have this original uh, tradition of Abrahamic religion. And they, but they also have other gods. So God sends uh, another prophet to them, but they reject this prophet and get punched. <laughs> right. That's usually what happens to the other guy, right? Who got it wrong, right? Um, but right. So there's, we have every reason to believe that there may have been lots of folks who had an Abrahamic type uh, ancestor, right? And that Sarah is a portamento, right? Sarai, the princess of the goddess. You know, I mean, there, there's every reason to believe there are things that predate the Israelite uh, Abraham and the Israelite Sarah. It's all over the place. All over the place, there's evidence that, um, that those, those are, they've become pedimentos of mythical figures in the region. So it would not surprise me at all to learn that the ancient Midianites had 
a similar ancestor to Abraham, a mythic ancestor. Al Avens wants to speak. Al Avens, speak. Uh, uh, Jethro's uh, advice to Moses is something that they teach in basic organization theory at any university. Any large organization or company would uh, set up the same formula. You would have uh, a chief executive would deal only with the major problems. And there are people at each level who deal with problems that uh, are not so important that maybe or more routine. Great, right? So this is, this is, you know, it's still in play today is what I hear you saying. It's still good. It's still a good model, right? right. For how to organize a large group where there's going to be issues and challenges, right? It's yeah. still working. <laughs> it worked pretty good. All right. Let's look at... Before you leave, can I ask a question? Yeah. Does this support intermarriage? Ah, uh, very interesting. The implications of that. Very interesting. Um, so I used this part of this kind of stuff when we, when we did the Hartman, when I brought the Hartman stuff here about what does it mean to belong to the people of Israel? That that it is a very, it is a new idea that you convert, which is what I was saying to Brian. It is a new thing, this idea that you convert to Judaism. That has never been how we understood ourselves. We understood ourselves as a people, and you could live as a gare among the Israelites, and or you could marry an Israelite and your children were Israelite. So there was a very different understanding of what it meant to be part of the Jewish people. So um, so your question is um, anachronistic here, George, but it's not that it doesn't inform the conversation. It's just it's an anachronistic question to ask of biblical Israel. What do you mean intermarriage? Marriage between whom and whom? Israelites and non-Israelites happened all the time. It was absolutely normative that Israelites married, Moshe married Zipporah, you know, yes. But look at Joseph. Joseph marries Asnat, right? Joseph marries an Egyptian. So it, it's very clear that non-Israelites marrying non-Israelites was normative, okay? So... You have Boaz who marries Ruth, the Moabite. She's called the Moabite all over the place. So, um, so I, I don't want to say that the, the question is not that it doesn't have import that he's that he marries a non-Israelite. Yes, but but it it's not an intermarriage according to Israelite identity as it's experienced in the biblical period. And that's what I want to always bring forward is this idea of, of intermarriage is a new idea. Does that make sense? Right? It was normative that you married a non-Israelite. Then they lived with you and your kids were Israelite, period. It was not a big deal. It's later when it's defined as a religious identity. Now we have some issues with what does it mean to marry someone who's not Jewish. That's a whole different thing than Israelite. 
And that's where it gets complicated. And that's where it gets messy. And that's where it gets yucky. And that's new. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. All right. I want to go here to this piece by the late Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory. All right. So we just read all this stuff about how it was, it was going to burn Moshe out to not delegate. So now it says the people, you know, are going to benefit. They'll go to their place in peace, that top line of what you can see on the screen. The people were not exhausted. Moses was, says Rabbi Sachs. How then would they gain by a system of delegation? Their case would still be heard, but not by Moses. How was this to their advantage? He quotes the Nitziv, and he says, the Nitziv begins by quoting the Talmud, Sanhedrin 6a, and the passage in Sanhedrin 6a is about what the sages call bitsua, what became known as pshara or compromise. This is a decision on the part of a judge in a civil case to seek a solution based on equity rather than strict application of the law. It is not wholly unlike mediation, in which the parties agree to a resolution that they both consider fair, regardless of whether or not it is based on statute or precedent. From a different perspective, it is a mode of conflict resolution in which both sides gain rather than the pure administration of justice in which one side wins and the other loses. The Talmud wants to know, is this good or bad? Is this to be adopted or avoided? And then he goes into the debate. Rabbi Eliezer, son of Jose the Galilean, said, it is forbidden to mediate. It's a bad thing to mediate. Instead, let the law pierce the mountain, right? So strict justice. And so Moses' motto was, let the law pierce the mountain. His brother Aaron, however, loved peace and pursued peace and made peace between people. Rabbi Yehuda ben Karcha said, it is good to mediate, for it is written in Zechariah, execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. Surely where there is strict justice, there is no peace. And where there is peace, there is no strict justice. What then is the justice that coexists with peace? We must say mediation. All right, stay with me, stay with me. The law follow, here, here's what's important. What, who does the law follow? Yehuda ben Korcha. It is permissible, even preferable to mediate with one proviso that the judge, here's the important part, that the judge does not yet know who is right and who is wrong. It is precisely this uncertainty at the early stages of a hearing that allows an equitable resolution to be favored over a strictly legal one. If the judge has already reached a clear verdict, it would be a suppression of justice on his part to favor a compromise solution. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying mediation is good. That's how it should go. But the only way mediation is even possible is if the judge doesn't know who's right and who's wrong that the judge has not decided who's right and who's wrong here, because if the judge already has reached a verdict and doesn't implement the verdict, the judge is, is suppressing justice. But if the judge truly doesn't know who's right and who's wrong, there's a possibility of hearing both sides 
and coming to a mediation that is not strict justice, right? Um, okay, so yes, Susan, I will make this available. We always post the sources uh, with the podcast. All right, so, so this idea of mediation can only happen when the judge can openly hear both sides, and that can only happen if the judge hasn't made up the judge's mind. Ingeniously applying this principle to the Israelites in Moses's day, the Nitziv points out that as the Talmud says, Moses preferred strict justice to peace. He had the word of God, right? He had the law. He had access to the knowledge of who's right and who's wrong according to God's law. Okay. He was not a man to compromise or mediate. In addition, As the greatest of the prophets, he knew almost instantly which of the parties before him was innocent and which guilty, who had right on his side and who did not. It was therefore impossible for him to mediate, since this is only permitted before the judge has reached a verdict, which in Moses' case was almost immediately. Hence the Nitziv's astonishing conclusion. By delegating the judicial function downward, Moses would bring ordinary people with no special prophetic or legal gifts into the seats of judgment. Precisely because they lacked Moses's intuitive knowledge of law and justice, they were able to propose equitable solutions. And an equitable solution is one in which both sides feel they have been heard, both gain, both believe the result is fair. That, as the Talmud says above, is the only kind of justice that at the same time creates peace. That is why the delegation of judgment would not only help Moses avoid total exhaustion, it would also help all of these people return to their, to reach their place in peace. This is brilliant. Could we please have the House and the Senate study Rabbi Sachs's text? Here, please. Everybody's so convinced they know what's right. Everyone is so convinced that they know. If you look at the Constitution, this is what it means. This is what it says. This is what that means in terms of policy. And it better go this way, or we're going to vote you down. (laughs) Right? Or we're going to shoot the whole thing and blow the whole thing up because we know how this is supposed to go. What the Nitziv is saying is exactly the opposite. That may be true, that it may be right, according to the law, to do X and say, therefore, we're going to blow up any proposition that does not adhere strictly to the law. That would be Moses. But the Nitziv is saying that the wisdom of this Parsha is exactly the opposite. It's not Moshe that the Talmud goes with. It's the other opinion. It's Aaron who says only someone who's not totally made up their mind, only someone who knows this is not a zero-sum game can do mediation, which is both sides contribute from how they understand it, and you reach a compromise. And that compromise is what allows for peace. And it is better than strict right or wrong justice. And I think this is a brilliant teaching for our moment right now as we look at government and we look how everyone is so invested in being 
you know, articulate about how right they are and why their proposal is the best and blow up something that that's not that. And this is saying that is not a way to peace. That is not a way for us to live, not only in peace, but it's not really justice. It's strict justice, but that's, that's not the desire. That's not the goal. To be right is not the goal. What is the goal, according to the Nitziv? For each side to feel heard and for each side to feel that it's win-win. Oh, my God. If we could only, like, infuse this, if we could inject this into the air system in all places of leadership right now in our country, right, and and all over the world. Oh, my God. I'm just like, I was like, yes, preach, Nitziv, preach, (laughs) right? Like, for this win-win is the goal. We are so locked into this idea that we have the correct, whoever we is, have the correct understanding of what's supposed to be happening here, what's right and what's wrong, that we have, we have forgotten the real goal, which is how to live together, how to live together in peace, how to live with one another so that everyone feels like, okay, I had to give, sure, but you did too, because that's the goal, is everyone feeling like they got something uh, out of it, and that's the point of adjudicating. That's the point of legislating. The point is for everyone to feel they've been heard and everyone to feel like they gave a little and everyone to feel like they got a little. And that's the lesson from our Parsha says Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs based on the Nitziv and the Talmud. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.